but it's really my version of what you hear people call affirmations. The way affirmations are usually described and practiced in the entrepreneurial community, I think are a lot of bunk because people make up this list of things they hope can one day be true of them and they just say it over and over to themselves, hoping that it becomes true. I think that's a bunch of bunk because I think your your mind is smarter than that. Hmm. Something in you says, I'm saying this as if it's true, but I know it's not true, you know? And so there's a kind of a hypocrisy meter in our minds that catches those things. And in my mind, it keeps it from being effective. But what I'm doing is I'm going to the scripture and I'm looking at areas of my life that I know I need to improve on. And I'm finding verses, scriptures that tell me what Christ has done to make that thing true of me. You know, that quality, say it's patience or say it's humility or whatever it is that I need in my life. And I know I need to grow in. I find something in scripture that is truth-based, that Mm. is God's statement of what it is that is true of me. Episode R036 features Carrie Green, an entrepreneur with a figure-it-out mentality. And here's a heads up. If you're a podcaster or you're thinking about launching a podcast, Carrie's business is podcastfasttrack.com. He's going to give you free access to his company's course on how to start a podcast. All you need to do is email him and tell him you heard his story on the Reboots podcast. His email address is in the show notes at rebootspodcast.com forward slash episode three six. Now, in this episode, Carrie is going to talk about his family's transition from nearly 20 years in ministry to an online business. He'll also talk about why church is often difficult for families of ministers and what people of faith can do to make families feel loved, cherished, and accepted. Carrie also talks about his transition from studying scripture to teach and toward studying scripture to change his self-image, his attitude, and his approach to life. Plus, Carrie offers some advice to people who are thinking about launching a podcast and why the most important thing is content and the least important thing is all this technical stuff. Hey there, you're dialed into Reboots, featuring stories about people who have been forced to start over in life or in business, all walks of life, anonymous or named, high profile or low down, stories with heart, soul, and grit. Because knowing and sharing our stories is essential for living a life of joy, experiencing healthy relationships, and impacting the world around us in a positive way. Here's your host, Tracy Winchell. Hey, Carrie, thank you for inviting us into your life today. I appreciate that. Oh, you're absolutely welcome. It's always fun to talk about life, history, the things that happen. It's an adventure, I'd say. Tell me a little bit about you and what business activities you're engaged in and and anything new coming up that you might be able to discuss? Sure. Well, I am kind of an internet entrepreneur, have only been at it about five years now. I transitioned out of a previous career and had to kind of figure out how I was going to put food on the table. And so what wound up being the thing is a podcast production and show notes business. And I say those two because those are the main things we provide, but we have all kinds of related services we provide as well. But it really is a service business. It's providing something for people that they don't want to do themselves and consequently can't afford to pay us for. <laughs> so uh, that's what we do. The The most recent thing that we've released is a a video course on how to podcast step-by-step. Step. And it's something we offer to clients who have never podcasted before, but it's also available to anyone. And a little known secret is it's also a podcast in itself. So if you want to learn how to podcast, but don't necessarily feel like you need the video part of it, all of the audio is on iTunes uh, under how to podcast step-by-step. So it's kind of a fun thing that we've got out there. I needed you about a year and a half ago. (laughs) Yeah. There's a lot of people that do and, you know, just figured out on their own, which is great. But, you know, why reinvent the wheel? Yep, I agree. I looked at your video intro and I'm 
fascinated by your concept that we care more. Tell me a little bit about that, how podcastfasttrack.com cares more. Well, that really was the outgrowth of realizing we provide a service that many other companies provide and quality is likely not going to be the differentiator because people who are skilled at audio editing and writing and know how to learn things like SEO optimization and all that could easily learn what we've learned and duplicate what we do. And so I realized the quality, even though we do strive for the highest quality, is not going to be the sole differentiator. We need to have something else that matters that will draw clients into being in a relationship with us because that's really what we want. We don't want one-time flash-in-the-pan relationships just to make a buck. We want long-term relationships with people whose podcast really matters to them. And so as I was thinking about it and praying about it a little bit, I just kept coming back to this idea of what is it that people really want? Well, they really want, besides podcast production and show notes, they want to be cared for as an individual. They want to know that they matter, that their message matters. And just given the team I've been able to build and the kind of individuals that I've allowed to be on the team, I realized we can probably pull that off better than anybody because we have a whole bunch of really caring individuals who love podcasting, but also love working with clients. And given my background in pastoral ministry, I, I have a heart for people as well. And so we just decided as a team, we're going to make that our mantra. And we're going to make that the thing that makes us stand out from others. And so far, it's been received very, very well. It's only been actually our, our drum that we're beating for about the last four months or so. And we're just getting really good response from it. I think what really hooked me on the backside is you talked about that podcastfasttrack.com is discerning about the messages you help clients either launch or grow. Yeah, that is something that, that flows out of a realization that there's a lot of content out there. First of all, just, I mean, I heard yesterday 550,000 podcasts in iTunes now. That is just unbelievable. That's a wow. lot of stuff to listen to. And as I've spent time in the iTunes directory, which I do every week in marketing, I realized that there's just a whole lot of junk out there. Not just that it's bad quality in terms of audio quality or or whatever they're putting up, but some some of the subject matter, in my opinion, is just junk. It's It's just you know, two guys sitting in their basement drinking beer and cursing and, you know, that kind of <laughs> stuff. And I just, I just was like, you know, I want to draw a line in the sand about who we're going to work with, because if we're going to invest all this time into caring for people and caring for the message they have to promote, that message really has to be worth promoting. And so we kind of have, have drawn a line in the sand. There's certain topics we will deal with and certain ones we won't. And sometimes it's very subjective and it always uh, lands on my lap in the end that I, I just have to make a call sometimes. And that's totally fine. I'm willing to do that. And and so far, it's gone well. Nobody has been really angry or really upset. Well, I'll take that back. There was one guy that was really upset, but that was a different sort of a deal as well. Hmm. So anyway, uh, it's something we just, we just want to stand for. And, you know, I thought we might get into some legal trouble with it at some point. But then I realized, you know, there are people who do – just a business podcast or just a women in business podcast, why can't we be, be a little discerning as well? And so, so that's what we chose to do. As long as you're not a municipality or a federal government, something like that, it's your business. You get to do what you want to, right? Yeah, that's how I feel about it. Yeah. How did you come to this particular business? Were you podcasting early on? If so, what is that? Yeah, great question. Uh, it's not often that someone who has been in a ministry position for 20 years winds up where I'm at, and I recognize that fully. I started my first podcast in early 2013, so it really wasn't that long ago. And I had a little bit of an advantage in that I had a background in radio from my college days. Or lease in the morning. Radio.
I worked kind of part-time doing shifts at a radio station. And so I knew about audio and I knew about that side of the broadcast industry and enjoyed it. And when I decided to do a podcast, it was kind of an easy transition into digital audio because it's so much easier now. You know, back then you had to do edits with a razor blade and a, and a piece of uh, reel-to-reel tape, you know. I remember those days. Yeah, yeah, no fun at all. And now it's just, you know, highlight and cut and it's pretty simple. So when I started doing my own podcast, I was doing all those things for myself because I couldn't afford to pay anybody to do it. And I really didn't want to either. It was kind of fun at first doing all that stuff. And I was actually having a conversation with a guy I was doing some work for. And he just off the cuff in the middle of one of our conversations uh, said, you should make a business out of this. Mm. And it was just an amazing light bulb that went off for me because, you know, they always say you should create a business around a passion or a pleasure or a pain that people have. And man, I knew that whole back end work of a podcast was a pain point for a lot of people. And so when that light bulb went off, I just started kind of thinking through pricing strategies and how we would market it and that sort of thing. And within a month or two, had three or four clients and a little further down the road, six or eight. And then when, by the time we got to about 14 clients per week that we were working with, it was just me working on all that work. I had to bring in my oldest son, who is my right-hand man now, and works with me in the business. And it's been a great journey. And we've, we've gone from there up to almost 50 clients. I've lost track because we keep adding them so fast. But wow. it's, it's been a great, a great journey. Oh my goodness. That surely you've got more than two of you working on 50 oh, yeah. clients. Wow. Oh yeah, we have a we have a team of 15 people now and they're not all full-time. In fact, most of them are are very part-time. But that's fine with me. If we can build a good company culture and have quality people doing the work and and benefiting, you know, financially and personally from uh, the lifestyle advantages of this kind of a business as as well as just the extra income. I, I'm totally for that. It's great to build a team and to have people who are alongside. Yeah. Well, you've alluded to a little bit about your reboot, so let's just kind of dive in there. Your reboot story, did it begin with a moment? Was it a coincidence, a choice, or a series of choices? Yeah, that's a great question. It was a matter of progressively over the course of about two or three years discerning that my passion, or if you want to call it a calling for the role I was playing as a pastor of small churches, had begun to wane. And I don't think it was for lack of effort on my part or lack of desire. It was just that the things that are required to give the kind of sacrifices you have to give to be in that sort of position just, just were not there anymore. And my wife noticed it first, and we're always talking about, you know, how each other's doing and what's going on in our lives and all that. So she brought it up and uh, she was losing her zeal for the role we were in. And I as well began, you know, thinking about that. Well, if she's having a hard time, I don't want to put her through the difficulties that that would be if I felt I should pursue it, but she didn't, you know, that would be awkward. And, and then within months, uh, whether it was a domino effect or not, my my passion started to wane a little. And within two to three years, we both just realized it's time for us to get out because the people that we serve, in my view, deserved someone whose heart was in it all the way. And I, that wasn't me anymore. And so we resigned from the position, not really knowing what we we're going to do, just knowing it was the right thing to do. And just started out on a new adventure of faith, just trying to determine uh, what's next. I'm lucky or blessed enough to call several pastors pretty close friends and their spouses, and I get the stress of the pastorate. When you and your wife decided you were going to be in the ministry, what did you think the pastorate was going to be like? Hmm. Uh, we knew it would be a lot of giving without much in return. We knew that it would be uh, stress at various points just from the weight of all the responsibilities that you carry, not just organizationally, but also in terms of leadership and bearing the burdens of other people alongside them and uh, 
and caring for people in a deep way. You know, it's hard sometimes to come home without bringing the burdens with you and that can affect your own family. And so we knew going in just from both my education in seminary and and other opportunities we'd had that it was going to be tough and it didn't disappoint. (laughs) It was exactly that, Uh, but it also was full of joy. It's a wonderful thing to see someone's life change right in front of your eyes and to know that God used you in a part of that. And, you know, it's never something you can take credit for because my wife and I constantly would stand back from situations and, and see this amazing outcome and kind of look at each other in bewilderment, like how in the world did that happen? Because, you know, it's what we were hoping for. But as far as we could tell from our side of the equation, it didn't look like it was going to happen. And yet it did. So it was a wonderful season for almost 20 years. Wow. And you specialized in small churches, right? Well, I didn't intentionally specialize in small churches, but that's just where I wound up. Over the course of 20 years, we were serving in – the very first church was quite a large church in the Denver metro area, but I was an associate pastor there. And then the the first church where I was the senior pastor was 175, 200 people. And then from there, they were all that size or smaller, and there were three others besides that. So it did seem that our our gifts and our our style of ministry, if you want to call it that – fit better in a smaller context. Sometimes it's like the pastor, from what I've been able to experience and understand, where does the pastor and where does the pastor's wife go for that respite that the church is supposed to be for all of us, right? Yeah, that is a good observation on your part. One of the things that Maybe disillusioned is too strong of a word, but one of the things that was disillusioning to me toward the end of our journey was realizing exactly what you said. The church is to be a family and the people in it are to care for each other like a good family would care for each other. Yet there's this person who is given a job description and a salary and is held accountable on an employee kind of level who is by everyone's admission, part of the family, but by everyone's action and treatment isn't always treated like part of the family or sometimes treated more like a commodity. And that was hard to swallow at times uh, because you know that you want and need. And for my sake, for or in my case, I wanted my family to receive the kind of family care that we saw going on within the body. And it just didn't always happen. Uh, coming back toward the pastor's family. And it's there's all kinds of reasons for it. And I don't, I don't really hold grudges or blame anybody for sure. it. It's just an observation of the way the church is structured in the Western world uh, makes it really tough for that mm-hmm. kind of a dynamic to happen for a pastor's family. I'm grateful that you and your wife and your entire family were able to serve for a time. You know, one of my favorite pastors, and I've, I've interviewed him, I think it's episode 21 with Ed Saucier. Ed was a growing pastor for a long, long, long time. He ended up founding the church that I attend, and then he kind of stumbled into the Celebrate Recovery ministry, and now Mm -hmm. that's all he does. Mm -hmm. And so one of the first times that I was in a Celebrate Recovery meeting with him, he said, I'm sure the church has hurt a lot of you, and I'm sure a lot of you haven't been to church in a while because you recognize that the church is full of hypocrites. And I agree. And trust me, there's room for one more just like you. And I was like, (laughs) oh, man. Yeah. The other favorite thing that Ed likes to say is, I don't ever want to be responsible for someone else's recovery or salvation because then I don't have to be held responsible when something goes awry. Hmm. That's very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of truth to both of those uh, statements. And so while we're kind of on the, the spiritual vein, how has your spiritual life changed? How's your family life changed? Are you, have you been able to find that place where you feel safe and loved and nurtured spiritually? You know, that is a very interesting question. No one has ever asked me before. I think initially stepping out of ministry, uh, we were, I wouldn't say at a spiritually low place, but definitely had 
you know, the marks in our face, the lines in our face to show the years of, of wear and tear. And so we, we had to take a little time to kind of recover and, and regroup in, a, in an emotional sense, in a spiritual sense. Uh, we, we never became disillusioned in terms of our faith. We never stopped our practices of faith that fuel our, our spiritual walks as individuals. But we did intentionally take a season of just not connecting with the church at all, just to kind of catch our breath. And the things that have happened, I can speak mainly for myself, you know, being a pastor and preparing sermons week after week after week, uh, you're in the scriptures all the time. You're, you're studying, you're learning, you're growing because it's part of your responsibility. And that can be a very rich thing. But when you step out of the context where that's required of you every week, you don't necessarily keep up that kind of same diligent study. And that was something I missed at first. I realized, you know, I've been really blessed for the past 20 years because I've been required to be immersing myself in the truth of God's word. And being on your own, I think I realized what the average person in church Hmm. experiences now is you have to develop your own spiritual disciplines and habits that fuel your own study in your own uh, feeding, so to speak, Wow! that I was kind of forced into. And it, it really has made me uh, understand your average believer a lot more than I did when I was in the pastorate, I think, which is a funny thing to say. Wow. But we have we found that place? I think we're still working on it. I mean, we, we attend a local church that we really love and the people there are great and we've established some relationships there. But it's kind of funny, the minute someone finds out you were a pastor, Oh, no. It's not that they look at you different. It's that I think assumptions are made that, oh, well, they've got everything all together or they are uh, strong in their faith and don't need encouragement. And so people just by default don't encourage when they think those things. And it's, mm. it's again, nobody's fault. It just it's kind of the way we work as people, I think. And uh, it's been an interesting thing to observe. Mm. Well, let's kind of shift gears and come back to your business when you were younger, did you have any notion that you were going to do a zig into the ministry and then a zag into entrepreneurship? You know, I have always had an entrepreneurial streak in me. And by that, I mean, not that I set up the lemonade stand on the corner or that I, I tried to create a business while I was in high school, but just that I was always kind of thinking outside the box and had this attitude of, I call it now FIO, figure it out. You know, I, I've just kind of always had that. And I think my dad demonstrated that to me in his ability to work with his hands and, and fix things and create things out of almost nothing when there was a need for it. And, and I had that attitude that whatever the problem is, we can figure it out. And I think that's what entrepreneurs are. They're problem solvers. You know, they're people that, that see a problem and create a solution and, the business side of it is just what has to be done if it's going to be profitable. You know, you've got to figure out how to market and sell and all those kinds of things. And so on the business side, I had no clue I would ever go that way. And I, I would have told you I had no desire to as well. Yet here I am right in the midst of it. And I can see it's it's just the best fit. I just I love it. I've I've had to learn things like sales and marketing that I never thought I would want to do. And actually have been in sales positions before where I stepped out of it and said, uh, I never want to do that again. Uh, but <laughs> but this is different. When it's your own thing, it's really different. Mm. You have a different sense of belief and a different sense of faith in what you're doing, I think. It's pretty cool because you, you talk about FIO. And I think the only reason I was able to stand up my podcast over the past year and a half without your help, because I didn't know, <laughs> is... Yeah. Internet marketer Brian Harris has a, a video called Figure It Out. Oh, that's great. And man, you know, he's a guy from Alabama and he's just kind of kind about it, but in your face about you have one job, figure it out. And so for several weeks, and this has been a full time gig for me for a while, I would block off every single Wednesday, the first thing I would do is play that figure it out video, and then I would tackle something extremely hard, and I would work on it until I was, I, I grasped it, or was 
bloodying my head against the wall, and then I would just stop. And then I would come back to it again, you know, take really detailed notes so that I can pick back up the next week. And then I would work those Wednesday figure it out sessions until I got it right. Wow. Wow. Well, I have to say, Tracy, you are, you are quite unique in that way. I do a little bit of business coaching and it's, it's not your average person who has that kind of drive and ability to figure things out. So good for you. Well, thanks. I'll, I'll post the, uh, the Brian Harris figure it out link. I actually even taught that as an adjunct in a recent semester where I, I taught a digital productions technique class. So yeah. Wow. Yeah. So all of that required me to fail a lot. What's yeah. your what's your take on failure? Uh, I think we learn how valuable failure is when we're learning how to walk, you know, as a child. You learn, I mean, if you look at any child that's toddling along trying to learn how to walk, they're they're learning how to balance, they're learning what it means to not take both feet off the floor at the same time, you know, all kinds of of elementary things that we take for granted, but that we all had to learn. And I think that's all failure is, is moving into a new situation that you previously did not know how to do and failing your way forward. Uh, Success comes from multiple, multiple, multiple failures. There's just no way it can happen any other way. And so, you know, we get afraid of failure. We, We don't try because we're afraid we're going to fail. And all of that really is what Zig Ziglar would call stinking thinking. We just... We've got to fail. It's how we're wired. It's how we learn. And I've heard uh, one person say, if you never learn from your mistakes, uh, you're only learning half as much as you could. Uh, and I, I just think that's that's absolutely true. We've got to learn from our mistakes and we've got to boldly make mistakes because that's how we're going to grow. And so, you know, I, I tell people all the time, sure, you can be afraid of failure, but you're you're handicapping yourself when you do that. Yeah, I've learned that the hard way. What's the the most important, maybe, life lesson that you've learned in launching your business? Oh, gosh, life lessons. People are more important than things. That includes the business. That includes the revenue. That includes policies that you establish in your business. That includes time schedules and appointments. And all of that's a little nuanced. You have to figure out what it means in every situation. But... You know, the people are what matter and the people are who we want to care for. And sometimes that means you allow a client to do something that's outside your normal sphere of policy, but you do it anyway because you care about the client. Same thing with your team members. You know, you have team members who have signed on to produce certain work by a certain time, but something comes up where they just can't do it. You know, family crisis or a sickness or whatever, and because they're more important than the thing – you figure out a way to get it done without them and and give them the time off that they need. It's just a valuable thing I've had to learn. And you'd think, you know, a guy in pastoral ministry would have learned that a long time ago. And I think I would have said I had learned it, but you learn it in a new way when you're in business. Do you think that showing grace increases or decreases the stress of running a business? Like, does it make decisions easier or create additional tension when you have to show someone, or when you choose to show someone grace. I guess have to show someone grace is <laughs> kind of an oxymoron. Yeah. yeah, exactly. I think it depends on how you define grace and on how committed you are to it. If you define grace as an obligation, like you were inferring there, it's not grace at all. It's an obligation. Grace is you know freely given and no way you can earn it, no way you can deserve it. It's just given. And so if you're a, a business owner who is uh, wanting to provide that for your team or for your clients, and the second part of what I said, if you're committed to it, it should serve as a core value where everything is filtered through that before you make a decision. And so in the example I gave about the team member, you know, it, it wasn't a hard decision to make at all to let that team member off the hook and do the work for them because I'm committed to grace. I'm committed to caring for them. And that comes first before chewing them out for missing a deadline or even satisfying a client. The the team comes first. And so, you know, I think it can be stressful, especially if you let yourself slip into that sense in which you feel like it's an obligation to be that way. 
But if it's really flowing from your heart and its core value, uh, to me, it simplifies a lot of decisions because it's just a no brainer. Uh, I'm going to give grace because that's who I am. That's who I've chosen to be. And the reason I ask that is because I've never been one really to show much grace. I'm not real excited about admitting that, um, but it's the Mm. truth. And so, in fact, it's only been the last three or four years that that when someone says, gosh, Tracy, you're, that's very kind of you, I haven't wanted to punch them in the face. <laughs> <laughs> I never have. <laughs> but I've that's never funny. taken kindly to someone suggesting I was being kind. I thought I had to be a hard-nosed person. Uh, uh. I wanted to be intimidating. And just the past few years, my journey of recovery has helped me understand that grace is a lot more important. And so as you're talking about that, that's what prompted me to ask that question. Because I think you're right. When grace is not an obligation, when that is who I say I want to be, that I embrace someone saying that I was kind and me knowing I was kind, it's kind of an easy decision to put people first. Yeah, and to me, it's it's very similar to you don't struggle when you get out of bed in the morning with whether or not you should go get down on your hands and knees and eat your breakfast out of a dog bowl. Well, why is that? Because <laughs> you're a human being. You're not a dog. You know, okay. It's just who you are. And I think that situations and circumstances that come up where we've been working on a character trait like grace and realize, you know, this is a decision I've made about who I am going to be in this world. We have to respond to situations with that same sort of default position, so to speak. And this is just who I am. I have to be this way because it's who I am. And maybe even more importantly, it's who I want to be. There's a desire behind it. How important has community been the past five years as you remake your career into something entirely different from it was? Uh, Community has been a a huge factor in it. Uh, First of all, the community of my family, uh, my wife, and we have five kids and three grand boys. We have always worked extra hard, especially being in the pastorate, that our family is open in our communication and that we are committed to that as a family because we saw as we got into ministry and before we got into ministry, the whole PK syndrome, you know, pastor's kid uh, often is the most badly behaved and (laughs) disruptive Hmm. kid in the church. And we committed, we did not want that. We wanted to ensure that our relationships were good. And so we would often put family before church things for that very reason. Good for Uh, you. We wanted to make sure family came first. And in doing so, God's blessed us to be able to have great relationships as a family. And so that community has been huge in this pivot that we've made. Also, it might sound strange, but it really is what it's supposed to be. And that is that the relationships and community I built online, you know, in social media have really been pivotal. Aren't they fun? Yeah, they are fun and they're very supportive. And there's something about the right online communities that really can empower and and help you be and create and do things far beyond what you thought you could. And it's a lot because you're rubbing shoulders with people who are doing the same things. And they are an inspiration in a way because you see someone else is accomplishing it. You've had good conversation and connection with them. And you realize, ah, they're just like me. I'm just like them. I can make this happen. And so you're inspired to keep going or to, or to try harder or to learn something new that you need to make the pivot happen. And uh, community's just been huge. I'm, I'm very glad you asked that question. Yeah, community's kind of a big deal. And again, I've never been a fan of community, but I don't think I would have ever seen God for who he is until I found a community who imperfectly but worked really hard to model the love of God in my life. Mm, yeah, that's great. Yeah, We've often heard in our pastoral journey that growth happens in community. And I, I believe that more and more all the time. I do too. And 
five or six years ago, I would have told, and I did tell some of my favorite pastors, that's nuts. I don't need community. <laughs> I got God on my front porch. Yeah. And I was wrong. Yeah. Yeah. We've talked a little bit about reshaping your habits as a follower of Christ instead of a, a shepherd of Christians. Yeah. So let's talk about a couple of new habits. Do you have a daily business habit that drives your motivation or your intelligence for the business so that you're a really good leader? Hmm. That is a great question. I would say I have a, a handful of habits that kind of coincide with each other. The first is learning and learning how to use great productivity apps and software. Uh, because, you know, my brain is not what it used to be. Uh, <laughs> I, used, I used to be able to hold lots of information in my head and not forget it and act on it. And my wife and I have a joke now. If I've slept since you told me something, chances are I won't remember it. So yep. the app that I use is called Nozbe, N-O-Z-B-E. Right. It's based on getting things done. And it's a an app that enables me to schedule projects and tasks and things like that, but to put, so to speak, a due date on it where it'll pop up on my list for the day that I've assigned it. And I can set recurring tasks. I can set, you know, every week, every month, every two weeks, all those kinds of things. And it just enables me to take things off of my mind, put them into a system I can trust, and then act on them when the time comes rather than have to be obsessing over it for the next two weeks until I have to get to that thing does require some other habits to be learned at the beginning, like checking your list every day, making sure when a new task comes up, you put it into the system, you know, you capture it. Uh, there's all kinds of little habits that go along with that bigger habit of using the app. But those have really enabled me to stay on track and to mm -hmm. fuel the process. Um, another habit that I would say it's a creative habit that I use when I need it, but that's, you know, a whiteboard in mapping out things, getting things out of my head in front of me where I can see them and take it all in at once rather than trying to keep it separate in my own mind. It, that just enables me to strategize and build plans and processes a lot better. That's how I'm wired. I know some people can do all that in their head, but man, it's been years since I've been able to do that in my head. I never could do that, Carrie. So there are times when I've put something on one of my whiteboards and and kind of forget about it and I'll walk by it a week or two later and I'll think, who wrote that? Well, it's my writing. I don't <laughs> yeah, even remember really writing good. it. I'm who like, did that? that's so good. <laughs> <laughs> well, how about a spiritual habit? How, how have you kind of redefined your relationship with God? Is there a habit that kind of helps you navigate your spiritual life as you continue navigating the spiritual reboot. Mm. It's very interesting that you asked that because I've been practicing a new habit the last probably nine months, 10 months, that is going to sound very anal and very, I don't know, minutia-oriented when you first hear it. But it's one I've been wanting to describe to someone and express to someone just because it's been so helpful. So here we go. You're my guinea pig. What I call it is... Well, I don't even know that I've given it a name, but it's really my version of what you hear people call affirmations. And the way affirmations are usually described and practiced in the entrepreneurial community, I think are a lot of bunk because uh, people make up this list of things they hope can one day be true of them. And they just say it over and over to themselves, hoping that it becomes true. I think that's a bunch of bunk because I think your your mind is smarter than that. Hmm. something in you says, I'm saying this as if it's true, but I know it's not true, you know? And so there's a kind of a hypocrisy meter in our hmm. minds that catches those things. And so it, in my mind, it keeps it from being effective. But what I'm doing is I'm going to the scripture and I'm looking at areas of my life that I know I need to improve on. And I'm finding verses, scriptures that tell me what Christ has done to make that thing true of me you know, that quality, say it's patience or say it's humility or whatever it is that I need in my life and I know I need to grow in. I, I find something in scripture that is truth-based, that mm. is God's statement 
of what it is that is true of me. And so what I do is I've got this journal and it's my, I call it my appropriations journal because I'm appropriating these truths for myself because God says they're true. And so every morning I fill a page of that journal by writing the same statements about myself every single day. And I write them. And I, for example, I am a humble man of God. I am a patient man of God. I am a loving man of God. And there's probably 10 or 12 others that I write. And I'll write them all. When I run out of them, I start writing them again. I, I'll fill up a whole page in that journal with that every single morning. Mm-hmm. And what it's done, I think, and just observing it, and I, I believe my wife would attest to this as well, is it's made me more aware throughout the day of the truth God says about me so that I can then be more mindful of it and live it out throughout the day. Because I think too often as believers in Christ, we read the scriptures and we nod our heads in agreement and then we go have lunch mm-hmm. and we, we just forget about it. What we read, we don't yep. intentionally apply it to our lives. And so for me, this is my intentional practice of getting these truths into my mind because I believe how we think is going to determine how we behave and how we behave will determine how we live. And I don't want to be one who stands at the end of my life or lays in my deathbed with lots of regrets. I want to live who I say I am now because that's when it matters. That is awesome, Carrie. And, you know, even worse, I've been the kind of believer who would read something and on the way to lunch talk about how somebody else needed to hear that sermon or read that scripture. When about Mm. me? Yeah, yeah. Wow. (sighs) Yeah. Thanks for being so vulnerable. That's That takes some guts to admit that. Yeah, you know, telling that truth keeps me from being that person again, I think. Yeah, 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 I agree. All right, a couple of more questions. Man, that's, that's good stuff, Carrie. What advice or encouragement do you have for, say, church members and those of us in the public at large who misunderstand our view of who a man of God, a minister, a theologian, a pastor should be? Wow. Uh, I would say, first of all, don't forget his family. It's not uncommon that assumptions are made that the pastor's family is okay. They're kind of taken for granted sometimes. But pastor's wives, pastor's kids, they need friends. They need people who encourage them. They need to be valued and affirmed just like everybody else. And if you want to love your pastor well, love his family well, because he's got not only the burden of his family and their needs, he's got the burden of the church that he's concerned about, which could be hundreds of people. So just keep that in mind. Uh, His family really matters and you can care for him greatly in that way. I would also say, uh, remember, he's human. He's going to make mistakes. He's going to be unwise at times. He's going to be a person who you respect one day and other days has made a mistake that you think is the end of the world. Cut him some slack, give him some grace, but at the same time, hold him accountable. You know, you do that in a loving way. And I think churches that are committed to each other really learn how to do that for each other. And the pastor's got to be included in that. You know, there's no easy answers for pastors or congregations. It's a hard calling that we've all been called into to be unified as a body of Christ. But uh, it's our calling, nevertheless. And I think we've all got to commit ourselves to working at it every single day. Mm. That's great advice. All right. Totally different advice and encouragement. For somebody who wants to start a podcast and isn't going to do like me and beat my head against the wall until I'm bloody, (laughs) until I get this right. Somebody's got a great idea for a podcast. Where do they start? Yeah, I would say the first thing you need to start with is seeing if you've got enough content or enough ideas to actually create a podcast. I have a little exercise that I have clients do quite often. For example, say the person is a content marketer and they say, oh, I've got this unique perspective on content marketing. I think I should make a podcast out of this. Well, what I would advise them to do is get out a sheet of paper or a computer app or whatever they want to use. And in about 15 minutes, as fast as you can, bullet point every single topic you can think of 
that you could speak on just personally without calling in people as guest interviews about that topic. And what you're doing is in 10 to 15 minutes, you're, you're testing actually how much knowledge you do have about that subject. You're testing your theory that you could do a great podcast about this. Because if you really are the expert, you'll have lots of things come to mind really quick. And then once you're done with that bullet point list, if you've done this on a computer, it's especially easy to do it this way. Put some spaces between all of them and then go back and in the next 10 to 15 minutes, see if you can create three sub points under each one of those topics. If you can, and you've got 20 or 30 different topics with three or four bullet points under each one, you've got 20 or 30 podcast episodes right there. Hmm. You just need to figure out how to develop those ideas. Uh, to me, that's a good test of whether you've got what it takes to do a solo type show. Now, obviously, there are topics in there that your audience would be better served by having a guest on who knows more about the subject than you do, perhaps. Man, go for that. Go through your list and notate this one. I would get a guest. This I would get a guest and then dream of who that guest would be and start building community with them on social media, interacting with their posts, making comments so that when the time comes for you, you invite them to be on your podcast. You're not so cold to them. They know who you are and they've uh, seen your name and, and they're more willing to be a part of your show. I mean, that's the very first step. People try to get into the tech and the equipment and how does RSS feed work and all that kind of stuff. Man, forget all that until you know you've got <laughs> yep. a good idea because there are over 550,000 podcasts on iTunes. If you're going to stand out, you've got to have great quality content first. People are not going to come for all the bells and whistles. And if they do, they won't for very long. You've got to be providing great value, tremendous value. I mean, just think about the movies that you watch over and over and over. Why is that? Well, it's because there's something about that movie that you just love. Sometimes it's intangible and you can't even say what it is. I believe the same thing happens with great podcasts. There's just something there. And it's usually the heart of the podcaster and the quality of the content. Mm. And this is a good exercise to get you started. Man. That's good stuff, Carrie. Well, I want to respect your time. My last formal question is, uh, do you have a, a specific tool, a book or a scripture, movie, anything that you would recommend to others, either whether they're about to embark on a life change like you've been through, or even if they just want to start a podcast? Hmm. Man, that's a hard question. It's hard to narrow down to one. I think what I would say is just use YouTube. <laughs> I mean, it sounds funny, <laughs> but I, I refer to it often as YouTube University. I mean, there is so much opportunity to learn anything you want to learn if you just have that figure it out attitude that we talked about. So make use of YouTube. I'm, I'm on YouTube all the time researching things I don't know. It's the second largest search engine in the world right now. So Make use of it. Find the topics you're interested in, dig in deep, and don't be afraid of hard work. The thing I notice with a lot of podcasters, there's a term we use in the industry called pod fading. And what it means is somebody who started their podcast with a lot of enthusiasm and then about eight episodes in just fades out because they've lost their drive. They didn't realize how hard it was going to be, whatever. And what I've noticed is that many of those people fade out because they underestimated the amount of work it was going to be. And they didn't commit beforehand, I'm going to do whatever it takes to make this successful. And uh, a good book, I think, since you asked for a book that, that comes to mind on this, there's a, a book called So Good They Can't Ignore You. Oh, yeah. By Cal Newport. A great book about this very topic. It's all based on a quote from the comedian Steve Martin who was once asked in an interview uh, for his advice to new comedians, those who are up and coming. And Steve said, most people, when they ask him that question, want three easy steps or three quick steps to success as a comedian. And he said, it doesn't exist. He said, the only advice I know to give you is be so good they can't ignore you. And that is valuable information, valuable advice rather for any endeavor, podcasting in particular, because there is so much competition out there. You've got to create great content, and that's a great way to do it. Well, Carrie, I'm fairly convinced that you have helped me create some great content with this conversation. I'm grateful. It's been a, a pleasure and to get to know you, and 
So thank you. Do you have anything else that you wanted to talk about that we didn't? I want to respect your time. Well, I appreciate that question, but I think all I would like to do is uh, I would like to give something to your audience, if you don't mind. Outstanding. I mentioned the How to Podcast Step-by-Step course that is actually a podcast as well. But if someone is looking to start a podcast and would love to have a video course, walk them through it step-by-step. If you contact me at Carrie, C-A-R-E-Y, at podcastfasttrack.com and mention this podcast episode, I will give you free access to that course. Oh, wow. That's outstanding. Thank you. How generous. You're welcome. Yeah. You're welcome. My pleasure. Thanks again, Carrie. I, I appreciate your time and enjoy the cooler Colorado weather. As we as we record this, it is uh, late spring in, in, in Arkansas, and it's it's hot around here. So, <laughs> Yeah. Well, I don't envy you in that, I have to admit. Thank you, my friend. I appreciate it. You bet. Thank you. Wow, what a neat conversation and a really neat guy. We're grateful for the time Kerry spent with us for his transparency and his willingness to encourage and to help. Now remember, if you are interested in launching a podcast, drop Kerry a line at Kerry, C-A-R-E-Y, at podcastfasttrack.com. Tell him you heard our conversation on the Reboots podcast, and he will unlock a video series designed to help you get started on your podcast journey. Now, if you don't want to miss another episode of the Reboots podcast and you're interested in navigating change in your own life, check out rebootspodcast.com forward slash change. If you do that, I'll send you a couple of my favorite daily habits that have helped me adjust to changes that I either needed to make or some tough changes that were made for me. That's life, right? Show notes for this episode are at rebootspodcast.com, episode 36. I'm Tracy Winchell, and we'll see you next time. Deo Valente. Reboots, Rough Cuts are edited, mixed, and mastered by my friend Mikhail Kozenkoff. Now, if you've enjoyed this episode, it's because Mikhail offered to help me clear the interview backlog from the Reboots vault. Mikhail manages ChristianAudioDebates.com, and it's a website devoted to turning into podcasts, scholarly debates between Christian apologists and atheists, skeptics, Muslims, etc., Now, if you're a podcaster who's overwhelmed with post-production, or maybe you're not sure how to edit your own podcast and you want a personal step-by-step walk through the editing and mixing process, or maybe you just want your podcast to sound the very best it can and not have to worry about editing at all, in any of those three instances, Mikhail is your guy. Podcast soundfixer at gmail.com is how you can get in touch with him. Thank you, Mikhail, for your generosity, for your expertise, and for just being such an incredible encourager. I'm Tracy Winchell, Dale Valente. We hope this episode has helped you in some way. If so, we'd love to hear from you. Maybe someone you care about might benefit from the Reboots podcast. It's easy to share from our website, rebootspodcast.com. The Reboots Podcast is a production of Winchell Storyworks Incorporated, a company dedicated to helping businesses and individuals know, share, and live their stories in order to impact the world around us in a positive way and to achieve financial freedom. 